Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is St. Paul among the philosophers. Now, you may be thinking of Paul in the Acropolis in Athens, chatting with the uh, various um, cynics and Stoics and Epicureans and so forth who like to hear novelty and say to Paul, well, we'd like to hear more of these things, old Paul. But some people think he's out of his mind with his weird story about this Jewish guy raised from the dead. However, the philosophers we have in mind are more contemporary. But to get us to them, First, Dad, I'm going to ask you, who is going to be taking the lead in this episode, just tell us who Paul is, because I feel like we still, sort of like we have the, you know, Old Testament God is a bad guy, meanie, vengeful deity, and New Testament God is all loving and kindly and warm. There's also this popular portrait that, like, Jesus is the really nice, loving one, kind of a hippie, and St. Paul is this kind of hard-ass driver, you know, against all good things, um, who invented the religion of Christianity or invented the religion about Christ instead of preserving the religion of Christ or other such common stereotypes. So just tell us to begin with, you know, who is Paul? What do we know about him as a segue into what we think about Paul nowadays? Well, it's interesting, Sarah, that with that little setup you made, we're already into the topic of Paul among the philosophers because the picture you just described of a hippie like Jesus, spreading love and peace and joy, as opposed to the stern, rigid, hard-ass Paul, is the portrait that Friedrich Nietzsche painted in his little book, The Antichrist. Man, we can't get away from Nietzsche. (laughs) No, Nietzsche's very influential for many reasons, because he gave voice to profound cultural shifts in the West more than 100 years ago. Uh, But that caricature that uh, Jesus was this innocent flower child who got chewed up by the machine uh, while uh, Paul turned his fate into a pretext for creating a new Judaism, a new new Judaism. Uh, That's basically what Nietzsche was arguing. Of course, Nietzsche was no friend to Judaism. Judaism... for him was the religion of resentment that had concocted superstitions about a fearsome God in order to snare the consciences of the powerful so that they would treat the weak better. That was basically Nietzsche's theory of religion. And no less a figure than Adolf Hitler somehow picks up this Nietzschean theory of the relationship of Jesus and Paul. And, uh, 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 speaks about it many times in, in his table talks and elsewhere. So already we're involved with Paul and the philosophers uh, with this. But what we do know, I mean, just let's say very modestly, a very modest historical critical statement about Paul. We know that uh, from his own testimony that he was a Pharisee, uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous for the traditions of his fathers, Uh, to such an extent that evidently he secured from the authorities in Jerusalem uh, a letter based on Deuteronomic law allowing him to arrest or otherwise persecute uh, the blasphemous early Jewish Christians 
who were speaking of a crucified man, Jesus, as if he were the Lord, the Son of God, etc., that he'd been raised from the dead and things like this. And this was, at that time, Paul regarded this as blasphemy uh, deserving of the, the harsh sanctions in Deuteronomic law. So he was armed with such a uh, arrest warrant, I suppose we could say, on his way to Damascus when he has his own encounter with the risen Christ. Uh, he talks about this as an apocalypse of the Son of God in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. And, and this was a breathtaking uh, uh, about face for him in his life because he had despised the followers of the crucified blasphemer Jesus as breaking down the boundary between the Jewish people and the dirty, ungodly Gentiles. And now he says that the revelation that the crucified Jesus was in fact the glorious Son of God, that was the synthesis that occurred to him on the road to Damascus, meant that he had now turned from being a despiser of the Gentiles who held them in contempt to becoming apostle of the risen Lord to those very Gentiles that he had despised, held in contempt. Peter Stolmacher, who was a disciple, uh, uh, the follower of Ernst Kaysemann in, in Tübingen, I think very rightly in his own work on Paul, emphasized this biographical foundation of Paul's theology. All of Paul's theology, including his doctrine of the justification of the ungodly by faith alone and Christ alone, to use the Lutheran slogans about this, uh, is rooted in his own transformation, uh, his own personal encounter with the risen Christ that made him from a persecutor of early Christians into their missionary apostle to the nations. And we do know that he spent the rest of his life trekking all over the Mediterranean, bringing that word to many different communities, both of Jews and Gentiles, but increasingly to Gentiles. That's right. So this is the uh, brief portrait of Paul, I think, that we want to get as a foundation for our talk today. Now, sometimes this portrait I've just painted is called the Lutheran Paul, as if uh, Luther had created this Paul image, and it is a fundamental distortion of what the apostle really said. So wait, what, what makes it Lutheran particularly? Is it the, bi the autobiographical foundation it's or the, what? It's the idea that Paul is focused on individual transformation. Oh, based on his own. Right. That The reason why faith is so important to Paul, of course, is that faith can only be a, something personally uh, appropriated. Right. It okay. is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith or faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. So that is the fundamental personal focus of the of Paul interpretation that is sometimes called the Lutheran Paul. Okay. So personal shading into individualistic. Right. Exactly. Now, now, I think a lot of modern, the so-called new perspective on Paul has this in the crosshairs. They want to say that this is a fundamental distortion of the apostles' theology. 
All right. And let's just say that the new perspective is like spelled with capital N, capital P, and is like this school of thought. It's a school of thought. I'll, I'll go over the basics of it real quick here. Okay. I think that the new perspective critics of the Lutheran Paul really have in their crosshairs the Paul interpretation of Rudolf Bultmann. And here the problem uh, is the wholesale jettisoning by Bultmann of the apocalyptic background. You can say myth if you like. And that's what reduces Paul's gospel for Bultmann to an individual matter of authenticity, according to Bultmann's reading of Heidegger as an existentialist. I think I submit that this is the real target, this individualist existentialist reduction of Paul's theology under the name the Lutheran Paul. It's really the Heideggerian uh, existentialist Paul. Yeah, because Luther certainly wouldn't tolerate any jettisoning of the apocalypse or of the resurrection. No. No. <laughs> no, just no. No. In yeah. fact, and Boltman, I think, was aware of that, uh, though he soft pedals it. That's interesting. Boltman's student, Ernst Kazeman, uh, against his uh, mentor, Rudolf Boltman, argued for the significance of the apocalyptic myth for understanding Paul. And already he ventured this as a critique of the Boltman school to which he belonged. That is to say that you can't do away with apocalyptic notions like resurrection of the body uh, and, and interpret them as nothing but new forms of self-understanding for the authentic individual. Uh, why? Because apocalyptic Kazeman insisted against Bultmann signifies that the creator is reaching out in Christ to reconcile and redeem the whole creation. Romans 8, the whole creation strains with eager longing, waiting for the revelation of the glorious liberty of the children of God. So already within the Boltman school, there arises a critique of Boltman's narrow, too narrow individualism and existentialism. And I think Kazeman also uh, objected to Boltman's reduction of, of the doctrine of Christ to almost a kind of a, a docetism in which the historical Jesus is nothing but a presupposition for the proclamation of the risen one. Uh, that's a, a kind of a, uh, when, when Boltman demythologizes resurrection, then he says that Christ, this is his famous statement, Christ is risen into the kerygma, into the proclamation. Not risen from the dead and ascended to the Father to reign until all enemies are subdued. All that Boltman jettisons. Christ is risen into the preaching. And the preaching is the trigger, uh, the, the call to authenticity in individual life. Okay, so let me just uh, clarify the, the genealogy of thought here for people who might be struggling to follow along. So, so we're talking about a world of German Lutheran church theology and presuppositions into which Rudolf Bultmann comes with his demythologization project projects and suggests that Jesus is not in any literal or historical sense raised from the dead, but that some 
individual transformation happens to the hearts of the apostles who start preaching something like an individual transformation. And then Boltman student Kazeman counters that by saying, no, for Paul, the thing really happens and that we're talking about a whole apocalyptic meaning revelatory disclosure of God's power into our world through the risen Jesus Christ, crucified and risen Jesus Christ. That's how far we've gotten. And this is still happening within this German Lutheran conversation right, world. Right, right. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. So now then to that, we have the new perspective criticizing what they think is Luther, but is probably more Boltzmann. So go from there. Well, the, it starts, interestingly enough, with a Swedish Lutheran, Christer Stendel. And he took a different route in criticizing Boltzmann uh, than Kazeman did and as a result launched the so-called new perspective. What, what Stendhal did, in my opinion, uh, is that basically he uh, interpreted Paul in terms of Luke-Acts. That is to say, he integrated Paul's message into a scheme of what he called salvation history on the model of Luke-Acts. And when you do that, the doctrine of justification gets demoted to the kind of status it has in the book of Acts. I think once in the book of Acts does Luke's Paul talk about justification, and it's not even very clear that it's justification by faith uh, in Acts. Uh, And there in Acts, you also have an interpretation of the controversies Paul was involved in, which had more to do with uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God rather than the idea of the justification of the ungodly, both Greek and Jew. Right, right. There's not much question or at least not as explicit question about the inclusion of the Jews. Though, And we talked about our in our first two-thirds of Acts episode that the first estranged community to be reconciled is, in fact, the good Jews at, on the Pentecost event. But you can see, I can see the problem there is that in, in, in Acts, you have a whole lot more proposed biographical detail about Paul's life than Paul ever tells us in his own authentic epistle. So there could be two competing versions of Paul, Paul's um, limited biographical but great theological self-disclosure, and then Luke's version of Paul as presented in the book of Acts. Which, of course, Luke is writing at least a half a generation, if not more, from the time of Paul's death. And the situation has changed. And so it's, I don't blame Luke for, for trying to modernize the, his and, and in, in some ways save the figure of Paul for the church. Uh, so I, I'm not trying to be critical of Luke Acts that way. And it's clear that Luke hugely admires Paul. I mean, Paul is the hero of Acts. That's right. Getting back to the new perspective here, the point is that what Stendhal's trying to do is say, that Paul's gospel is a, a matter of how the Gentiles get included in the covenant. That's what Paul's gospel is really about. And there's, so there's continuity in the covenants with Israel and that this is just pulling, pulling in the Gentiles, but otherwise there's no disruption in the relationship between God and people. Right. In some ways, yes. Yeah. Stendhal was not a great theologian, and he didn't go on to develop his ideas very powerfully. But what a lot of people read him as saying was that 
Paul's gospel is about social inclusiveness. It's not about existential authenticity. Get that? I mean, that that's the fundamental point. That seems to be the reigning theology as such in liberal Protestantism. Oh, I think Stendhal was a big leap, leap in that direction, yes. Uh, so he launched this, uh, and he blamed the the narrow doctrine of justification by faith uh, on Luther and Augustine, whom he said represented an introspective Western consciousness, a monkish anxiety about authenticity. Mm. Again, I think this is really something that could be laid at the door of Bultmann more than of the historical Luther. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a little bit later, the British Methodist New Testament scholar James Dunn uh, made an important argument, and he claimed to show in an analysis of Paul's controversy with Peter, as recorded in Galatians, a subtle shift occurring. How, and I'm not going to go into the details here, I'll just give you the bottom line how Paul's rhetoric betrays the early Jewish Christian theology of salvation by faith and works. This was the early Jewish Christian theology. Of course, works are necessary for salvation, but the the event of Jesus Christ uh, adds a particular kind of faith to these works. And together, faith and works justify. But in his conflict over the circumcision party in Galatia, Paul transformed that early theology polemically into a flat antithesis between faith and works. Now, this uh, argument of Dunn does not stand up to scrutiny. Uh, I think J. Lewis Martin demolishes it in his commentary on Galatians. But in any case, this was particularly Uh, important because many at the time were thinking, uh, burdened with the uh, Christian responsibility for anti-Semitism in the 20th century, and and concerned to look at how Christian theology might have at least latently uh, laid the latent foundations for Nazi anti-Semitism. We're saying, look, look, the earliest Christian theology was not in disharmony with Judaism. Just like Judaism, it preached faith and works. And this was uh, transformed into an antithesis between faith and works, but that was a polemical construction created by Paul in the emergency of defending uncircumcised Gentiles as inclusion in the church. So it's kind of a justification of the ungodly is an ad hoc solution to a specific problem. But otherwise, the the idea is that there's an unbroken continuity, again, between Judaism on faith and works and Christianity on faith and works. But the goal is to not blame the Jews, as Christians have been wont to do over 2,000 well, years. Well, yes, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument that really doesn't work because this linear idea of continuity— uh, from Judaism to Christianity, also is implicitly supersessionist. Right. Because well, and the Jews at, don't accept it. For that the Jews matter. don't accept it, and therefore they're left behind in the dustbin of history because they haven't attained to Christian universalism. I mean, that's it's, it's if you're if you're trying to do something in Christian theology 
that actually builds bridges and makes friendships with Judaism, I don't think this is the way to go. But let's go on. The other great figure, probably the most important, is N.T. Wright, who advanced all of these arguments with a further development of Paul's salvation history continuity with Judaism uh, by arguing that Paul's theology is a cryptic or coded work of anti-imperialism. This, this, this puts Paul's uh, theology and project, of course, in continuity with certain kinds of Second Temple Judaism, which also resisted Roman or Greco-Roman imperialism. Uh, and perhaps, you know, N.T. Wright's work on this has been massive and very influential. But Wright himself equivocates back and forth about where he really stands. And he wrote one somewhere, I remember reading one place, that if he were stranded on a desert island and had only one book to read, uh, what would it be? And his answer was Kazeman's Commentary on Romans. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. So, so the party positions, the claims that are made for the new perspective versus the apocalyptic perspective of Kazeman and my teacher, J. Lewis Martin, is not as absolute as even uh, some partisans would have us believe. Right. Well, I mean, if, if the, the target is a purely non-apocalyptic existentialist interpretation of Christ's resurrection and faith on the one hand, and then the concern to overcome a very guilty and terrible Christian history towards Judaism, I mean, those two goals are solid and admirable as far as I'm concerned. The question is whether the, the strategies used to pursue those and the interpretation of Paul are accurate or helpful in achieving those goals. I think this is it's very difficult in contemporary theology because the argumentation is often so superficial as if to say if this is your intention therefore you are justified but in, intention is not achievement what you intend to say and what you actually accomplish may be two different things and so we can honor the good intentions of people we disagree with, we don't have to attack them personally as dishonorable people. But the really the real work of theology is not whether you intend well, but whether you accomplish something good. Right. So let, right. let's go on there. So actually in theology, good works do count for something. Theology is a human work and it's judged according to its fruits. Yes, I agree with that. All right. Okay. Good. So let's go on. So what what's fascinating, we've done this brief excursus on the new perspective, because while all of these the theologians are running away from the, doc, the Lutheran doctrine of Paul, the doctrine of justification, and so forth and so on, this is precisely what these, this school of post-Marxist continental philosophers have discovered and what they're so excited about. I'm going to talk about uh, Slavoj Žižek, a Slovenian. He's the most Marxist of them all. I mean, he sometimes calls himself a Stalinist, but I think that's li largely for shock value. And, and then Alain Badu, who is a French philosopher uh, who calls himself a Maoist, a follower of Chairman Mao. Yikes. 
and uh, or what he was earlier in his uh, career. And Giorgio Agamben, who is the most in- interesting and sophisticated of the bunch. But I want to uh, talk about all three of these guys here in the rest of this podcast. Where's Agamben from? He's an Italian. Italian, okay. So, again, there are important truths in all the uh, work of the New Perspective people. But for all their proper emphasis on the social and political implication of Paul's gospel, which we affirm, and the apocalyptic perspective certainly does also affirm, they neglect as Bultmannian Paul's not insignificant emphasis on the transformation of the self into a theological subject. I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. Far be it for me to boast, but in the cross of my Lord, right? That transformation of the self is what's caught the attention of remarkably these contemporary post-Leninist continental philosophers, Zizek, Badu, and Agamben. Uh, Zizek debated the well-known Anglo-Catholic theologian John Milbank in a book they jointly published called The Monstrosity of Christ. Oh, what a title. It is. It comes from Hegel, uh, and I don't need to go into the background of that that the person of Christ is neither fish nor fowl, neither human or divine. It's some kind of monstrosity. Now, we don't have time to talk about Milbank, uh, but in this debate, he comes off as essentially a Neoplatonist. What does that mean? For him, the ultimate or transcendent harmony of the cosmos is disclosed in Christ so that a believer sees through Christ to the transcendent peace above. And in knowing that harmony or that peace that transcends the fog and friction of temporal life, the believer then can be a peaceable person by this uh, participation uh, uh, in the cosmic harmony revealed in Christ. So Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection reveal something about the nature of reality, but don't actually alter the nature of reality. Yeah, that's right. He's. I think that's that's a little strong, but I think that that's 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 right. Uh, uh, and the proof of that, Sarah, is that Milbank takes Pauline paradox. We proclaim, we proclaim Christ crucified. Now, that's rhetorically a paradox, technically a catechistic paradox. Christ is supposed to be a victor, but Christ crucified is a victim. And that's a paradox that forces you, because it doesn't make any sense in your usual frame of reference, it forces you into a new frame of reference in order to make sense of what the paradox is communicating. But Milbank turns Pauline paradox into uh, analogy. Analogy is a a thick doctrine descending from St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, And the idea here is that it's the Neoplatonic idea that all the finite 
uh, discrete multiplicity of finite entities in the world are somehow participating in that ultimate or transcendent, transcendent cosmic harmony. But we, being in the finite, can't perceive that or see it. You know, like the, like the Bette Midler song, From a Distance, God is Watching. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Right? And so that, but that's what Christ does. Christ is the analog of God. In Christ, you see the finite bathed with the aura of the infinite. Christ is the window through which the believer perceives the transcendent harmony. And then, of course, the believer is altered or changed by this perception and becomes a peaceable person here below. But it's primarily a transformation of perception of the nature of reality. You were deceived about it. Now you know the truth. So it's more like an enlightenment than a, an apocalypse. Platonic yeah. illumination. Yes, exactly. Right, right. Okay. Because Milbank defends his reading of Paul this way, Zizek framed the debate between them as follows, between a Christianity which fully asserts the, now he uses the word paradox here, but he means analogy, which fully asserts the paradox of the coincidence of opposites in the transcendent God in whom all creatures analogically participate. That's Milbank's position. A Christianity which fully asserts the coincidence of opposites in the transcendent God in whom all creatures analogically participate. Versus his position, which he calls Zizek. the, the atheist-Hegelian Christianity which treats paradox as merely a logical moment to be surpassed. Now, let me unpack that second one. Uh, Zizek is philosophically a left-wing Hegelian um, who argues that the real meaning of Hegel's philosophy is the death of the otherworldly idea of God who died on the cross with Jesus when no one came to rescue him. God really died on the cross, meaning the otherworldly or transcendent idea of God failed Jesus, who died in agony, not delivered, but fully abandoned by the God who was not there to deliver him. That's Zizek's Marxist left-wing Hegelian reading. So that's what Zizek says happened, that even though Christians were deceived and confused and they went on worshiping God like he existed. But actually, the cross was the disclosure that there is no God. That's right. That's okay. that's exactly how a left-wing Hegelian reads it. Okay. And which treats paradox as merely a logical moment to be surpassed. In other words, this was not the death of the incarnate Son of God for the sake of his vindication and resurrection and salvation of humanity through him. But it is a important cognitive event in the history of humanity, which has to be understood as such and thus surpassed. The idea of an otherworldly God has died. We have to pass through that traumatic moment of realizing there is no God there to rescue Jesus. 
So is it fair to say that both Milbank and Zizek assume that the the basic fact of the the cross and for Milbank, I presume the resurrection is that now we see clearly what we didn't see before, but it's primarily a perception event. Yes, and that's why the debate between them finally is so frustrating, because neither of them can grasp the unity of the cross and the resurrection ah, as, a, okay. as, a, as a divine act. But still, against Milbank, what Zizek wants to urge is that his, he basically says his rosy, rose-colored glasses prevent him from seeing the real meaning of the paradox of Christ crucified, which is the true death of God. Uh, Zizek contends for the atheist Hegelian reading of Paul, God is hidden in the crucified Christ, not because of some transcendent truth behind him, but in order to hide the fact that there's nothing there, that there is nothing there. So, so Zizek is saying that he finds this atheism in Paul. Then, how does Paul yes. come into this? I'm not, I'm not clear on that. Because by insisting upon the cross, he Zizek argues Pauline Christology secretes atheism. Huh. Okay. Because the crucified Christ, uh, as an event, is the great protest against all phony transcendence which as a Marxist he regards as the narcotic of the masses, the opiate of the people. So what are we to make of this confrontation? <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Tell us. Well, I'll say simply, Milbank certainly gets Paul entirely wrong and makes a big fat target for Zizek's critique. That's what <laughs> I would say. Okay. Uh, because at one point uh, Zizek says, in my atheism, I am a better Christian than you. Because I, I will not put on rose-colored glasses that avert my eyes from the real conflict, pain, and agony here on this earth. And I, I have to say, I sympathize with Zizek in that statement. Neoplatonism is its own kind of opiate. Yes, the, I, I think that actually that's, that's um, Zizek's deepest point. So what Zizek seeks in Paul is not God, but Paul's transformed human agency, uh, Paul's transformed subjectivity. He sees in Paul uh, a, a person who can resist the dehumanizing implications of our objective predicament of godlessness. So he admires Paul personally, and wants what happened to Paul somehow to be available to more people, even though he rejects the explicit premises of it, it seems. See, this is, to put this in context, you have to understand all of these post-Leninist philosophers, they still, with Marx, uh, they still are deeply suspicious of the the capitalist political economy, which commoditizes everything into a marketable object. And they find this, this global capitalism as an iron cage, which has its grip on all of us and none of us can escape. How, given the failure of Marxist-Leninism, given the failure that communist China has simply become state capitalism with a vengeance, how can the project of human liberation ever get off the ground? 
this is why uh, some uh, really smart philosophers are, are saying there's a kind of an objective despair percolating all through Western society. We have no idea. We, we see that we're trapped in this juggernaut and we have no way out and we can't imagine any way out. And so you have Antifa and other kind of groups kind of aggressively asserting a certain kind of political agency, but they're really just mindlessly banging their heads against the wall. How, how, how can you do something like what Paul did, who, who created a religion that was the soul of a soulless world. Yeah, of course, for Paul, it's by definition not something you can generate from yourself inside out. It has to happen from the outside in through the actual agency of God to make an agent out of me. But that obviously is a non-starter. Right. But now, well, that's interesting. That segues right into the next figure, Alain Badu. The search is for a political subject, a human agent, after the failure of Marxism-Leninism to introduce a just world. That's what animates the new interest in Paul among the philosophers. Certainly, Badu makes it unequivocally clear that they are vis-a-vis the theistic deity of the Christian Platonist uh, tradition. Like Nietzsche, they are atheists. They Make that very clear. Zizek, too. I mean, they don't believe that there is a God in any sense. And they're particularly critical of Christian Platonism following the critique of Nietzsche. Now, I follow uh, Eberhard Jungel and Robert Jensen in my book with another French philosopher, Deleuze, the Deleuzean philosopher Brent Adkins where I've argued that the death of God and the person of the crucified Son is rather the hinge on which the Trinitarian renewal of theology turns. And that means Trinitarianism is not mere theism. It's not perfect being theology in the Platonist tradition, because it does not think of the perfection of God as invulnerability from suffering, but rather as love's compassionate capacity for suffering for the sake of others to end their suffering. So we should just clarify again, as we have in some of our previous episodes, that even Christians, you know, and probably to a great extent Jews and Muslims in or Western civilization, when we say God— we are kind of fallback position is not necessarily so much Christian as it is the ancient philosophical position of uh, in, that we found in, in Greek and Roman writings, which is this, like you said, this idea of perfect being above it all, unaffected by it all, hopefully good, maybe indifference. And that we start with that and then we kind of like try to push, uh, you know, father or son or Holy Spirit and figure out like that the problem is getting something like an incarnate Christ into that equation or a loving father or a, a present in this world Holy Spirit. And that's that's the direction we're working from. But I think what you're trying to say is that actually the Christian doctrine of God doesn't start there with that fallback Western civilization position, but actually has a 
different doctrine of God. And so when you want to understand what God is from a Christian perspective, you don't start with the the perfections or whatever. You start actually with the incarnate and crucified and risen Jesus Christ, who was raised by his father through the power of their spirit. And that's actually where you start from. And then you can go from there, like maybe to the attributes like omnipotence or omniscience or whatever. But the direction is really important and everything will get skewed and wonky if you don't start in the right place. That's right. Yes. And I would only supplement what you said by saying uh, not only that the father raised his son from death, but the father sent his son into death. And the son obediently went both in both cases, not uh, uh, for our sakes. Okay. So right, let's just, right, right. Okay. okay. So Badu is a chastened Maoist, as I mentioned, a follower of Chairman Mao. That, that means he's a Marxist who resists the institutionalization of the revolution, for example, in the Soviet bureaucracy, and uh, over against this believes in the permanency of revolution. That was actually Mao's kind of doctrine that the, of a permanent revolution. I'll talk about a catacrestic paradox. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what the whole cultural revolution was about in the 70s that did so much damage to China. Uh, Mao, Mao felt that the revolution was settling into bureaucracy and institutionalization and wanted to shake things up. Uh, but that, of course, was a terrible failure. And so, it killed a lot more people. 10 million people, maybe. Badu is at a loss to see what actually unfolded in massive bloodshed and failure. Uh, in the attempt to institute permanent revolution. Uh, so he too is a, a, now a, like a post-Maoist, trying to, where can we find the permanent revolution? And he claims to have rediscovered the paradigm of the revolutionary political subject in Paul the Apostle. <laughs> Crazy. Okay. Who, he said, now, he, now listen to this though, this is a direct quote. Paul, he says, opened, quote, provoked entirely alone, a cultural revolution upon which we still depend, close quote. Paul, he says, open quote, is our contemporary who in revolutionary fashion wanted to destroy a model of society based on social inequality, imperialism, and slavery, close quote. Okay. So why don't you unpack that for us? Well, you know, contrary to to so many of the silly criticisms of Paul as a rigid dogmatist uh, and patriarchal bully, Badu, coming from outside the Christian faith, can look at Paul and see through the detritus of his cultural situation what is of the essence. You are all one in Christ. There is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, no married or unmarried, but all are one in Christ. That vision of the beloved community is at the heart of Paul's gospel. Uh, neither circumcision matters nor uncircumcision. All that matters is a new creation. That's what Badu sees. And he sees that Paul's agency as the apostle uh, who engineers th this community uh, is itself an instantiation of a revolutionary, of a permanent revolution, right? So this is what he wants to retrieve from Paul by deciphering, deciphering the underlying conceptual organization of Paul's account 
of theological subjectivity. Mind you, while expressly setting aside the content of Paul's event, which he calls quite explicitly the fable of the resurrection. So he has kind of apostleship envy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Sans resurrection without a resurrection. Okay. It seems like a non-starter to me again, but okay. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a sign, though, of, of a, a certain kind of desperation among rigorous thinkers who are saying, how can we ever have a just society? Everywhere we look is a dead end. Everywhere we look, we get caught up in the di- dynamics of a of a unjust system, which s- simply perpetuates itself, and even in our resistance, makes us puppets of it. So they're kind of stuck in their own Marxist salvation history, and they want an apocalyptic dis- disclosure to shake things up. Ah, there's a good. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. He says, direct quote, it is rigorously impossible to believe in the resurrection of the crucified, end quote. Okay. (laughs) That is to say that he recognizes that the universal gospel of permanent revolution, which Paul created, depended for Paul on a fable, which he, Badeau, cannot himself affirm as anything real. What is real, rather, is the unanticipated event, the calling to arise as a worker for the permanent and universal revolution to come. Badu reduces that to the event of calling. Paul says it that in Galatians 2, that God revealed his son to him and called him to be an apostle. So for Badu, the heart of the event is the calling to arise as a worker for a permanent and universal revolution revolution. The problem here is how this event is any less fabulous merely by being translated from a theological to a philosophical idiom. Honestly, it seems more fabulous to me by the demonstrated disinterest of the workers in this kind of revolutionary (laughs) activity. That's right. And I think, well, let's let it stand there with Badu. But I mean, it is interesting, like you said, that someone who doesn't accept any of the content of Paul's faith is nevertheless so intrigued and fascinated by him and wants what he has and wants to find some way of sharing it. It it is a bizarre and fascinating development. It is. And that's where so much of our contemporary church literature is still so saturated with stupid and undiscerning criticism of Paul as, you know— we talked about at the beginning, how genuinely radical thinkers with a emancipatory or, or liberate, liberative intention can look through the detritus of the first century literature to the breathtaking event of Paul. Hmm. I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. All that matters is a new creation. Yeah. And I think it also demonstrates, to hearken back to our last episode on Gudina Tumsa, that it doesn't work unless it's holistic. You can't extract from Paul, even if you're a radical, the the emancipatory, liberative, political, social effects, if you don't also have the content of Christ himself, the incarnate Lord who was crucified and raised again. Amen, sister. <laughs> uh, let's go on. I think you'll like Giorgio Agamben a little bit better. All right. Well, I mean, it's not a um, maybe damning with faint praise there, but sure, let's give it a try. <laughs> well, he's written a little book on Paul's letter to the Romans titled The Time That Remains. 
And he says in the book that his purpose is to reclaim Romans as the premier messianic text of Western civilization. So first we have to unpack a little bit what he means by messianic. And he's depended upon the influential, interesting Jewish thinker Walter Benjamin at the beginning of the 20th century. He actually died fleeing the Nazis. Uh, Benjamin reinstated serious philosophical consideration of the category of the messianic. Agamben, in his own work, wishes to take up this theme where Benjamin left off. So I'm not going to talk much about Benjamin. I'm just going to talk about Agamben. Fundamentally, Agamben argues that the messianic is to be understood as an attack on the concept of empty linear time, on the attack on the concept of empty linear time, chronos, in the, in the name of kairos. Empty linear time, chronos, is the working presupposition of a philosophy of boundless and irresistible perfectibility. Right? So we've got time every day in every way. Things are getting a little bit better. Oh, we might have a setback, two, two steps forward, one step back. But we've got time, and time is on our side, and we're moving irresistibly forward. Onward and upward, right. right. And Agamben's point is that when you have a philosophy of empty linear time, harnessed to a teleology of perfectibility, a progressive, for a progressive philosophy, neither the sigh of the oppressed nor the creeping catastrophe of contradictory and unsustainable modernity in the name of progress can be perceived, not even recognized. So to put that and maybe translate that into the language of piety, that would be the same as your job is to spend your whole life getting better and better and better and better because that's what a good person does, a religious person does. And therefore, implicitly, if not explicitly, the person who backslides, who fails, who struggles, who never has the uh, the ubermensch gumption to become really great is somehow an embarrassment, a problem for the perfectible tra trajectory and therefore needs to be cast aside or cast out left behind left behind yeah right yeah you're a loser right you're an embarrassment to us we don't affiliate with people like you the in america the trumpian right would call them losers and the progressive left would call them deplorables there you go there you go now what is messianic for agamben is this Chirotic, kairos, chirotic disruption of this secular faith and, faith and progress. It reconfigures time as an urgent now time in which the possibility of the restoration of the fallen, those whom linear time has left behind, can be conceived. So I think this is where Agamben is a much better reader of Paul than either Zizek or Badeau. The now time uh, disrupts the faith in progress, and in disrupting it, creates the possibility, imperceptible to progressives, of the restoration of the fallen, those whom linear time is left behind. Now, for Lutheran theology, I think this is what's uh, 
really intriguing about Agamben's reading of Romans. At the heart of it is an interpretation, uh, uh, is an insight into what he calls Paul's division of the division. That's a phrase he uses, Paul's division of the division. The division is the way the Torah separates the righteous from the unrighteous, the pious from the ungodly, the Jew from the Gentile. Uh, The Torah does that. The Torah divides the two ways of the Torah, choose life, choose death, right? And Paul Agamemnon argues argues a division of this division, which in one which in one way affirms the Jewish law, and yet in another way cancels it. Quoting now, Paul is able to set the law of faith against the law of works, rather than being an antinomy, which involves two unrelated and completely heterogeneous principles. Here the opposition lies within the law itself, between the law's normative or legislative and promissory elements. There is something in the law that is constituent to exceed its legislative or normative side and is not reducible to it, and it is this excess and inner dialectic that Paul refers to by means of the binomial promise slash law. All right. I think I think you need to unpack that for us a bit. Yeah, right. What he's saying, Paul is not opposing his new gospel to the old Jewish law of Moses. He's saying that Paul has discovered within the law a tension between it's indicative and it's imperative. The indicative would be the promissory. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the indicative of grace, which is in the Torah and is the foundation of the Torah. The normative or legislative uh, aspect of the Torah is, therefore, have no other gods before me. Because if you do, you'll fall back into bondage, right? So Paul has discovered that there is a tension within the law itself between its normative and its promissory uh, uh, dimensions. Now, I say this is a genuine insight because it overcomes the sterile opposition, let alone the even more sterile synthesis of what Lutherans traditionally term law and gospel, as if they were two heterogeneous principles. It's not like there's the new Christian gospel, which is superseding the old nasty Jewish law, but within the law itself, there is an inner tension between the indicative of grace and the imperative of grace the law of works and the law of faith. Right. And as both Paul and Luther observe, it is sin precisely that exploits that tension to turn the law into an instrument of death against us, which was supposed to be a presentation and form of life for us, but it becomes the instrument of death through the, the, let's say, the ministry, the evil ministry of sin. Exactly. Okay. 
So I think we can recognize today that a careful inspection of Old Testament Torah shows that the imperatives of the law are always embedded in the indicative of, of the Lord's sovereign grace and Israel's election, such that in the course of Israel's history, the indicative of grace and the imperative of covenant obedience come into conflict with each other in the face of Israel's human failure. I mean, that's the whole story of the Old Testament again and again and again. Yeah. So thus it is within Torah that one rather comes to see with Luther in Christ's death and resurrection. And here's this wonderful Luther quote that I love, the law battling the law in order to become liberty for all. The law battling the law. So, and to unpack that, Christ embodies the law's supreme value of agape love, the electing love, the sovereign and electing and creative love of God. That's the indicative of the law. Here it's battling the law in its accusatory, condemnatory function of saying, but you have other gods besides God, and you are idolaters, and you have betrayed the covenant, and you've failed. So here the indicative of the law the promise of God's sovereign grace battles with the accusation, the condemnation of the law that we have not kept the covenant in order to become liberty for all. Right. So this is all very familiar to us, of course, as Pauline Lutherans. But so what does it mean for Agamben himself? Is he also a, a Marxist atheist or where does this fit into his his interests or schemes? I, it's difficult to say. Uh uh, let me just say this. What he concludes, this, or at least this brief presentation of him that I'm giving today, I'll conclude with this. The symbiosis of sin and law as imperative conduces to death, and so for human salvation, this symbiosis must be put to death, canceled, and, and then surpassed in the Christ event justification of the ungodly, rendering the law uh, inoperative in one sense as accusation while carrying it to fulfillment in the new community of love. And here's where I think uh, Lutherans, especially those inclined to quietism and individualism, should perk up their ears. How does it carry it to fulfillment? In the new community of love, the messianic community, I'm quoting, not a writing but a form of life. The Messianic community, the New Covenant, not a writing but a form of life. So Agamben points us to a proper doctrine of the church as part of the gospel. Mm, mm. The Messianic community, what I call the beloved community. And I mean, is that somehow part of that? I mean, the, the honest Marxist longing for genuine solidarity among people, and this is where he locates it in this messianic community? Yes. Interesting. I think it is interesting. And I think, so in some, I would finish this off with a couple of statements. All the stupid anachronistic criticisms of Paul on on sexuality and stuff like that, which don't understand the real brutality of sexual mores in the first century world in which Paul was living, complaints that he has substituted a religion about Jesus for the religion of Jesus, 
which ignore the fact that we would know nothing about the religion of Jesus had he not been remembered on account of the resurrection of this crucified one. All of this uh, should, we should be chastened when really superior philosophers deeply committed to human emancipation and in Agamben's case, to a form of life which is actually a community of love. Uh, see how Paul's new and theological subject is a paradigm for a form of life formed into the new community of agape love. Oh, that the theologians would take note. <laughs> well, it is the classic problem that familiarity breeds contempt. We're too close to it. We have lost sense of its of its radicality and even its meaning at all, I think. Yeah, well, we're going to try to rectify that a little bit further in our next episodes where we will take a deep dive into the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, and try to read it afresh and let it be as truly radical and world-changing as it was when he first wrote it. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.